All right. Well, last week we began a series that will take us through the book of Hebrews, one of the most interesting books in the New Testament. As we discussed, Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament without a clearly defined human author. I made the case that although we cannot be certain of the author now, we can be sure that the original audience knew exactly who wrote it, or else they would have never accepted it as scripture. We talked about the fact that the writers of the New Testament had proximity to Christ, and many of them performed miracles to prove they spoke for God. The author of Hebrews must have been a member of that very small group of authoritative people. The book of Hebrews consists mostly of contrast and comparison between the old way of knowing God through the law and the new way of knowing God through Jesus. The new way is actually the old way completed and is therefore a better way. We see this contrast from the very first verse of the book. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Because of the Jewish background of the audience, Hebrews will give us a better understanding of the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We will have the chance to better understand the roots of Christianity and will be amazed at the continuity of our faith going all the way back to the beginning of creation. Hebrews was written to strengthen spiritual foundations. The original audience was about to enter a time of great change and terrible persecution. God gave them this book in order to prepare them for the shakeup that was coming their way. That's why I think Hebrews is a great book for us to study right now. In preparation for the future, we will learn what we need to hold on to, as well as perhaps some things that we need to let go of. Ultimately, if we will apply the teachings of this book, we will be better prepared to face the storms of life and the shakeups that are most certainly coming our way. Now, let's really start to get into the text which is contained within the unchanging Word of God, the Bible, this incredible gift that God has given us so that we might be able to learn all that we need to know for life and godliness. As I mentioned, the book of Hebrews is a book of foundations, and the cornerstone of this foundation is laid out in the first four verses Here we have a powerful description of the true identity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews begins and builds upon the truth about Jesus from the very first verse. Again, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The foundation of this book and of Christianity in general is nothing less than the identity 
of Jesus Christ. He is the specific power behind this better way to know God described in, in this book of Hebrews. As such, how important is this subject? I do not believe there is anything that can more potently impact your life than a deeper understanding and trust in the limitless depths of the identity of Jesus Christ. True Christianity is defined by a love relationship with Christ. We are motivated and empowered by the love we receive from the Savior and the love we feel for our Savior. This love can grow as we know Him more. That's why there's no single topic that has, has the potential to bear more fruit in your life than the identity of Christ. To know Him is to love Him. Conversely, you cannot deeply love someone until you deeply know them. Part of knowing Jesus better is having a better understanding of who He is. This is where Hebrews begins. By making it clear that the heart of this better way to know God is found in knowing Christ. Most of you, I'm sure, would say you believe in Jesus, but what exactly is it that you have believed about Him? What have you forgotten? What have you watered down? What have you doubted? What have you questioned? What have you abandoned? What have you heard elsewhere? Who do you believe more today? The voice of Scripture or the voice of whatever the latest television documentary says about Jesus? Hebrews gives us many stern warnings in terms of how we might stray from our knowledge of Jesus. Warnings which I hope will draw us to re-examine the foundation of our faith which first and foremost is in Christ. Listen, just one of several warnings in Hebrews, just shooting forward for a moment from chapter 3, Hebrews 3 verse 12, see to it brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Now after hearing this warning, ask yourself again the question, why is it so important that we keep going back to the identity of Christ? Why do we need to keep strengthening our understanding of him. The reason is that what you believe about Christ impacts both your temporary present and your eternal future like nothing else. We must not settle for the kind of belief that James taught us is temporary. We must not settle for that, you know, the, the kind of faith that talks about in the book of James. The kind of faith that even, uh, I guess you could say, the demons have. That Satan and his demons know that Jesus exists. Is that the kind of faith that you, that you have? I, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You know, our faith must go further than simple acknowledgement that the gospel events even really happened, as important as that is. It's a good place to start. But ultimately, we must develop the kind of belief that is a daily conviction, conviction and continual trust in the all sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Our belief must be based in exactly who Jesus is. This is the kind of belief that changes everything. This is the heart of this better way which is found in knowing the real 
Jesus. So, without further delay, what can we learn about Christ from these foundational verses of the book of Hebrews? I see nine truths neatly packed within four verses. Nine foundational truths about Christ. First of all, Jesus Christ is the voice of God. Our text says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. In these last days, Jesus is both how God has spoken and he is the voice of God himself. Jesus is a better way for God to speak to people. It is difficult for us to understand the reverence that the Jews held for the Old Testament scriptures, the scripture that they had, their Bible. They truly believed that in the ink on ancient scrolls, they had the actual words of God. They believed that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, spoke to them personally just as strongly as if his voice had thundered from the sky five minutes earlier. This belief was passed down through the generations from those days when prophets like Moses were doing things like parting the Red Sea. They believed in the stories of Scripture like we believe in the most meaningful moments of our own lives. We would do well to believe in Scripture as strongly as they did. They weighed everything against the words of God contained in the Torah and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. This is why the opening of the book of Hebrews would have sounded so radical to their ears. The writer is saying that Old Testament scripture is actually outdone by the teachings of the Son of God. That is precisely what is insinuated in these opening words. The inspired writer is saying the old way in which God spoke was great, but this new way is better, inasmuch as the voice of the Son of God is better than the voice of a merely human prophet. The case is made throughout Hebrews that Christ is the final word of God. And that because of who he is, his message transcends everything else in terms of authority. That is not to say that Jesus contradicted the Old Testament scriptures, but that he finished what was lacking in them. And in truth, by his coming, he did in fact render certain practices commanded in the Old Testament as obsolete. In effect, Jesus changed everything. For example, how much of the Old Testament deals with the sacrificial system? You know, uh, how they would slaughter lambs and goats and other animals as a part of their worship. Much of the Old Testament deals with this, right? And we can learn a lot about God from that system. But obviously we are no longer sacrificing animals, and that is because Jesus Christ was the ultimate (laughs) sacrifice. Jesus simply changed the rules about life and death level stuff. He did. This is also true of the many ceremonial and civil laws which are found throughout the Old Testament, as well as the religious practices surrounding the tabernacle and later the temple. These laws and rituals were all designed to point forward to Christ. They were only shadows of the real thing, as the Hebrew writer later calls them. And so when the real thing came, the shadows were eclipsed. We will delve into a lot of that discussion in this series. Beyond all of that, the voice or the message of Christ completely abolished the overzealous interpretations of Old Testament Scripture which had overtaken Judaism during the second temple period leading into the first century. At this point, the teachers of the law, not unlike us today, um, had written whole books, commentaries sort of, 
which had come to be accepted as God's truth. And these were placed right alongside Scripture. These writings contain thousands of laws added on top of what God had said, wherein is legalism. And as the voice of God, Jesus turned every ounce of that mess on its head. In his opening words, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus had the authority to do just that because he is God's son, which really meant God in the flesh, God in human form. This is why his voice or his message is supreme above all other messages, all other voices that they had heard or heard from. Side note, Christ's voice must be supreme above all the messages we have received as well. If you don't realize, that might even mean letting go of some of your favorite pet voices. You might be naive. The point is that as esteemed as the prophets had been, and as real and important as their message had been, all of that was nothing compared to God himself coming down to earth to speak to us personally. The better way starts with the fact that God came in the flesh. And he not only explained better what he had meant all along, but he gave us the rest of the story. Jesus Christ is the voice of God. Not only through his words, but by his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus encompassed the complete message of God for the world. He is the word made flesh, as John put it. In these last days... In these last days. By the way, if it was last days then, it's still last days, right? Does that make sense? I mean, nothing happened. It, nothing ha- it didn't end yet. So we're still in the last days. In these last days, Christ has given us the final message. He's given us words that, that make all other words in some ways obsolete. We live in those days. You know, we don't need any other voices who might claim to speak new words for God. Because we're still in the last days. And in these last days, God has already spoken through His Son. It doesn't get any better than that. We don't need any more than what He's already said. Jesus is the voice of God. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the heir of God. Reading on our text says of Jesus, whom God appointed heir of all things. The word heir is a term that refers to a current identity with a future promise. If you're an heir, you have a current identity and a future promise. To be an heir is a good thing in the present, but it means something even better in the future. This is infinitely more true when the one you stand to inherit from is God. So what will the Son inherit from the Father? To what estate is Christ an heir? Our text says He's the heir of all things. But what does that really mean exactly? What is this inheritance of Christ? Well, let's read about it. From John's Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. If you look at the last page of your Bible, you'll see that Jesus is clearly identified as this one who offers living water to whosoever will drink. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. He is the Son. He is the inheritor of all things now and forever. This means that the new heaven and the new earth will belong to Jesus. This new creation, this paradise to come, is the inheritance of Christ. What does this mean for us? This is where it gets good. The Bible says in Romans 8, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba, Father. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And get this, and since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share His glory, we must also share His suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory He will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Let that sink in. As adopted children of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ, we are the eternal recipients of the promises of God. When following Jesus gets tough on this earth, remember that paradise is your inheritance with him. Let me try putting this in more common terms. As the friends of Jesus, we're on his gravy train, okay? We don't just have friends in high places, we have a brother in the highest place. As a brother or sister of Christ, dare I say that God is now your sugar daddy. (laughs) And that's pretty much what Abba means, in case you think I'm being irreverent. Jesus is the heir of God, and as brothers and his brothers and sisters, By faith, we are co-heirs with Him. It means something really, really good, folks. Sometimes we overreact to the health and wealth doctrine until we're like, everything about Christianity is is suffering. we got some pretty good promises coming our way. It's really good to be a child of God through faith in Christ. Be encouraged. It's good folks. Our bright and glorious future finds a firm foundation in our relationship with Christ because He is the heir of God. Thirdly, we see that Jesus is the power of creation. The power of creation. Our text continues, through whom also He made the world. I hope everybody realizes that Jesus did not come to exist when he was born in Bethlehem. I don't know what that is, but let's just pretend it isn't happening. Let's be mature listeners and just delete that from the future of this uh, sermon. We won't notice it from now on. Jesus didn't come to exist when he was born in Bethlehem. He simply came down for a visit. John chapter 1 
it is abundantly clear about this. It says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, this Word, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. A few verses later, John explains that the Word is Jesus Christ in heavenly form. John says that Christ was in the beginning, and He was with God, and He was God. Through Christ, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has ever been made. In Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. You see, through Christ, God made the world. Christ is the power of creation. And I don't know if you've looked up at the stars on a clear night lately, but we're talking about a power that makes Satan and his minions look like ants. Jesus is the power of creation. What does Satan ever make? What did the demons ever do? They're nothing compared to Jesus. He's the power of creation. Next time you look at creation in awe, thank Jesus. He's the one through whom it was made. And if you have something in, in you that cringes and says, but I thought God was creator. I'm here to tell you that the creator God is exactly who Jesus is. He is God. Colossians chapter 1 also makes this very clear. Christ is the power of creation. Next from verse 3. We see that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. The word radiance is descriptive of light. We talked about the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible says that in our inheritance, it would, it, it, what will be our eternal home, there will no longer be any sun. Did you know that? There won't be any, any, solar, any solar power. Uh, I guess Roland will be without a job, but he works for a solar company. Um, there won't be any sun, and, and there will no longer be any, any night, but rather that the glory of God in Christ will be our perpetual light. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <clears throat> By the way, the Bible also says that God created light before he created the sun. So eternity won't be the first time there will be light without sunshine. Regardless, the rules are going to change dramatically in this completely new and improved creation of God. Amazingly, the radiance of Christ is literally going to be the light of the world. Now understand this. Jews, also known as Hebrews, understood very clearly that God is light. The human author here was speaking of essence. By saying that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, he is saying that Jesus is the essence of God. Let me say that again. By saying that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, he is saying that Jesus is the essence of God. As Paul put it in another place, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. The Bible also tells us about what happened every time Moses came before God. Moses couldn't really see God, but he saw light. Several passages tell us that Moses' face shone so brightly after meeting with God that we'd have to put a veil over his face so that people could stand to look at it. Obviously, this sort of thing doesn't happen every day. It only happened to one of the primary authors of Scripture, the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible. But unlike Moses, 
Jesus didn't simply have a face that shone from being with God. No, Jesus could be described as the light of God itself. Christ's very essence is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is he really saying? If God is light and Jesus is light, then who is Jesus? In case the answer isn't clear, we can always go to the next phrase where our text tells us number five, Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God. That's number five. Folks, this is exactly what it says in the second part of verse three. Look at it for yourself and stop being unsure about the identity of Jesus. The Bible says that the Son, Jesus, is the exact representation of God's being. Some people have trouble accepting the deity of Christ. But the New Testament is not unclear on it. And you see, since Jesus is the exact representation of God's being, and since Jesus came to earth, we can actually know at a completely different level what God is like. Friends, no other major religion enjoys such an intimate knowledge of God. To know about Allah, you have to trust the words of a less than honorable man named Muhammad. Showed up in like the seventh century. What about modern day Jews? The majority who reject Christ. Even they are stuck in a shroud of mystery regarding the one true God because they have not believed in his son. No one knows God except through his son. Nothing could be more clear in the Bible than this. How, how do we know God through the Son, who is the exact representation of God's being? We can know the God of the universe because he came to us and taught us in the flesh. Let that sink in. The Jesus who is revealed in Scripture, the Jesus who came down and dwelt among us, is the exact representation of God. No other religion makes this kind of claim. No other religion offers this kind of hope. Next, Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all things. Number six, Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all things. Our text continues, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. By his power, He sustains all things. Greek word translated as upholds there is more often translated sustains. The idea is that Jesus keeps the world going around. He keeps us from spinning off into space. He's got the whole world in his hands. Wait, who does? Jesus does. All creation is held together by the power of the word of Jesus Christ. In another place, the Bible says, for by Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus Christ is not only the power of creation as we covered before, the one through whom the world was created, but he's also the very power holding creation together. And by the way, holding this universe together takes a lot of power. I wonder who could do that? Only God. The combination 
of factors that must stay in equilibrium for life to continue to exist on this planet is complicated beyond our ability to comprehend. Natural disasters still happen because the earth was cursed when paradise was lost through sin, but why are natural disasters the exception rather than the rule? What happens if the earth tilts a little bit more on its axis, or if the moon gets a little bit closer, or if the temperature changes by more than a few degrees on average over any number of, for any number of cosmic reasons? What happens if an asteroid makes its way through our atmosphere? We could spend hours talking about all the relatively easy ways life could be snuffed out on this planet, and yet everything just keeps clicking along. Why? Because the one who created it is also sustaining it. But again, who are we talking about? We are talking about Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure this means that Jesus was not just some affable philosopher or eloquent teacher who made a little historical splash back in the first century. No, Jesus sustains the universe in this very moment. We are still here in this moment because of Jesus. How does this knowledge affect your worship? Did you ever wonder if you shouldn't be singing or praying to Jesus? Or did you ever have a moment of being afraid that the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, that Jesus is somehow less than God? Did you ever wonder if we've made too much of Jesus in our churches, potentially raising the ire of a jealous God? Friend, if so, you missed one of the primary messages of the New Testament. Jesus is God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the power of creation and the sustainer of the universe. Jesus is God. That's exactly what the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Listen, there can be no halfway understanding of who Jesus is, or else we who make up Orthodox Christianity are idolaters and blasphemers destined for God's wrath. How dare we sing praises to Jesus if he is not God? Jesus is either God or we are headed for hell because of what we believe about Jesus. So what do you believe? Do you understand how foundational this is? Do you understand how this would apply if you were kneeling before a member of ISIS about to have your head removed from your shoulders because of your faith in Jesus? What do you really believe about Jesus Christ? I'm here to tell you in days coming soon, including the day when you stand before God, what you believe about Jesus is going to matter more than anything else. So how is your foundation? What happens when the shaking comes? What happens when storms rise and fires rage and your faith is put to the test? How firm is your foundation? If you're a true Christian, the foundation of your faith is what you believe regarding Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of our faith or else we build upon shifting sand. The Word of God says Jesus is the one who holds all things together. But wait, isn't that God's job? Now you're catching on. Jesus does God's job because Jesus is God. The next time you read about what Jesus said or what Jesus did, make yourself stop and realize that although the people around him didn't know it, he was God in their midst. Folks, they were arguing with God. They ignored God. They rejected God. They executed God. What about you? Who is your God? 
Who is Jesus to you? When Jesus was here, he humbled himself to the point of death. He emptied himself, Philippians 2. He, he, he humbled himself to the point of death, even on a cross. But you need to understand something very clearly. Jesus is not still on the cross. He is not still half naked and bleeding. He is not some little picture on the wall at the hospital or even a statue in a church. Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. This is the one we worship. This is the Jesus we serve. This is the Christ of Christianity. He is not dead. He is not sitting on one of your shoulders with Satan on the other. Instead, Jesus is holding the universe together by the power of his word. But we're not even finished yet. What other truths can we learn regarding the identity of our Lord and Savior from these opening verses in the book of Hebrews? Number seven, Jesus Christ is our only hope for purity. Our text continues saying, when he had made purification of sins. Notice past tense. He had made purification of sins. Have you, full, have you fully understood and embraced the fact that Jesus paid the price for your sins on the cross? Satisfying the holy justice of God with his own death. Your debt is paid in full. The blood of Christ is more than enough. When you receive the gift of forgiveness by grace through faith, you become a pure and spotless bride, acceptable to a holy God who loves you and gave his life for you. The Bible says your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. This is all because of Jesus. Jesus has already done the hard part. The hard part, folks. He has already made purification for your sins. All of them. The question is whether or not you have received this gift by faith. Have you? Or have you ignored what he has done for you? Have you rejected his gift? God has said that your eternity hangs in the balance depending on this very choice and no other. What choice? The choice to trust in Jesus for purity, for forgiveness, for salvation, and the eternal life waiting for those who have been made pure. Why would such serious consequences rest upon your acceptance or rejection of what Jesus did on the cross. Well, you see, it goes back to his identity. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was fully God, which means that God died for you. Can you stop for a moment and consider what I just said? God, if God died for you, and you ignore, well, whatever, I'll think about it someday maybe. Maybe next time I come to church in a couple years. If God died for you and you ignore or reject his gift, my friends, you will get what you deserve. And you will get what you have chosen. Eternity apart from God in the place where those who do not receive his gift of forgiveness go, that being a fiery, miserable hell. As Paul said, I beg you, his exact words, I beg you, I beg you as an ambassador for Christ, be reconciled to God. Do not reject his gift in Christ. Instead, accept it and get ready for God to change your life so that your earthly purity begins to match your heavenly purity. Jesus and only Jesus makes pure. 
Next, we find out where Jesus is right now. Number eight, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit is with us here. And in some ways, that's like Jesus is with us here, right? The whole Trinity thing. But most specifically, right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the majesty on high. It says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. By the way, in the book of Revelation, it's described a little bit differently, and it's like he's in the midst of the throne. Interesting. Listen, the Trinity is impossible for mankind to completely grasp. You'll never package up the Trinity in a little logical box. Most cults and false religions form over this very issue. God is three persons in one, each distinct, yet each fully God. What I want to continue to focus on right now, though, is the identity of Christ. The Christ of Christianity is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father. The Son and the Father are together, distinct, yet also as one. The simple fact that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father says a lot about who He is. Let me try a little contrast to show you how important this is. Muhammad is not at the right hand of God. Buddha is not at the right hand of God. Joseph Smith is not at the right hand of God. The Virgin Mary is not at the right hand of God. Moses is not at the right hand of God. Peter and Paul and the apostles are not at the right hand of God. Only one person who ever lived on this earth is now seated at the right hand of God. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now some of us here today may have so embraced the deity of Christ already as we should that we miss the power of statements like these in Scripture. See, most of us do not start with the understanding of God that the Hebrews had. Something else we could work on. Our less informed concept of God might mean that we don't really get the punch of what is being said here about Jesus, that He is at God's right hand. The relatively few times in the Old Testament when a prophet actually had some kind of face-to-face type encounter with God, they all had one thing in common. They thought they were going to die. And keep in mind that none of them actually saw the majesty, as Hebrews here refers to God the Father. The Bible says that man cannot see God as he is in heaven and live. Patriarchs and prophets who had encounters with God assumed they were seeing some type of angel, a messenger from God, and many times I believe they were actually seeing a pre-flesh version of Christ. But the point is that they believed God in heaven to be so furiously holy that the thought of actually standing in his presence was unthinkable. Let's remember the scene in the Jewish courtroom just before Jesus was sentenced. The Bible says, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. It was just too much for these religious leaders to hear a man claiming that soon he would be seated at the right hand of God. To their ears, this was a claim of equality with God. To place yourself at God's right hand was to place yourself on his level. And out of their zeal for God, they reacted with intense desire to see this man named Jesus put to death. Why? Because they didn't understand that Jesus was God in the flesh. What do you believe about Christ? 
How does it really impact your life? Is Jesus really more of an icon to you? Maybe some half understood character from Sunday school? What if he really is who he claimed to be? What if, what would that mean for your life? Think about that. Who is your God? Who is your God? Lastly, in this opening section of Hebrews, we learn that Jesus Christ is superior to all created beings. In verse four, our text says, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So it says he is superior to the angels, but how do I uh, derive from this that he is superior to all created beings? Well, the Bible actually teaches that no created being is superior to the angels. That's in the Bible. That being the case, if the writer of Hebrews is saying that a certain being is better than the angels, he must be talking about an uncreated person. Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. Remember from John 1, Jesus has no beginning and no end. He was not created. What does this mean? It means he was God. (laughs) The only being superior to the angels who were in fact created by him that is, by the power of the word of Jesus. All things were created by him, if you recall. But again, let's try and understand things from the perspective of the original audience. This will also help in your understanding of the Old Testament. It is important to realize the fact that the Hebrew people saw angels as an extension of God. It was almost like God was there. They saw angels as an extension of God. I spent many years studying the Old Testament before this really dawned on me. I finally realized that the reason so many passages about angels sort of offended me was that I had a weak view of angels in the first place. I did not understand them as the Hebrew authors of Scripture understood them. You may have noticed that sometimes the line between God and angels gets a little blurry in Scripture. For instance, in Exodus 3, you can read of Moses' theophany, as we call it, his encounter with God at the burning bush. In that scene, the angel in the bush and the voice of the Lord are interchangeable. One moment, it says Moses is standing in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And the next, we're told, it's actually the voice of God. Is Moses talking to an angel or is Moses talking to God? I challenge you to try to answer that question from the text. You won't be able to do so. Another example of this is found in Genesis 32, where the Bible says Jacob wrestled with a man from heaven all night. The next thing you know, his hip is dislocated, and this heavenly being gives him a new name, Israel, which means what? One who wrestles with an angel? No, one who wrestles with God. Jacob then names the place Penuel, which basically means, I have seen the face of God. As I mentioned, the Bible is clear that man cannot truly see God and live. Therefore, Jewish and Christian theologians throughout history have understood this to be an angelic encounter. But the point I want to make is that in cases like these, and to our own discomfort, Hebrew people thought of angels as basically extensions of God. They had a very high view of angels. Additionally, the Bible teaches that outside of God, there is simply no being in the universe that is greater than an angel. For example, when Jesus said that no man had ever been born who was greater than John the Baptist, he also said that even the lowliest angel was still greater than John. The Hebrews held great reverence for the angels of God. So when the writer of the book of Hebrews says that Christ is superior to angels, 
He places Christ in a unique position that only God had ever held before. In Hebrew thought, and they were exactly correct, no one but God is greater than the angels. So if Christ is superior to angels, then he is superior to every other created being. In fact, he must be a manifestation of God himself. The next section of Hebrews deals specifically with angels and the superiority of Christ over them. So I don't want to say more about it today, but if you're interested in angels, come next week. In closing this morning, I think what stuck with me the most from this passage is that the Jesus of our culture, and sadly the Jesus of some of our churches, is nothing more than an idol in the image of man. I'm afraid we have remade Christ in our own image. When he is portrayed as anything but God, he is maligned, profaned, and reinvented, especially in the world. But even professing Christians can sometimes think of Jesus as anything from merely historical to what can sound almost like an an imaginary friend. Meanwhile, the real Jesus Christ continues to keep the very earth we walk on from crumbling into dust. Let there be no lack of clarity in the proclamation of this church. Jesus is not our co-pilot. He is not a little friend in our pocket. His name is not a magic word that helps our team win football games. Jesus is not a dead philosopher from the first century. He is not even a baby in a manger or a pasty white figure on a cross. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is the voice of God. Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the power of creation. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God. He is the sustainer of all things. He is our only hope for purity. He is seated at the right hand of God, and Jesus Christ is superior to all created beings. This is the Savior who is worthy of our worship of our lives. He is the God we serve and the God we must obey. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? God, thank you for your word and how it reminds us of the razor edge of truth that we need to walk when it comes to Jesus. Our faith is in him. Our faith, our hope for eternity is in the identity of Jesus Christ and what he did in his, in his death and resurrection. That is the least common denominator of how we're saved. Our faith is in who he is and what he did. It's so important that we understand who you are, Jesus. Thank you for this word that's been preserved for over 2,000 years now so that we can be reminded, so that we can powerfully take it in, that we can know it at the depths of our soul, that we don't make apology, that we don't somehow feel like we need to lessen our view of Jesus because you are Jesus. Father, you are, you are the, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father, you are one, and we worship you, we serve you. Thank you for the way that Jesus Christ defines our faith and helps us understand what's different about what we believe than what everyone says, that if you're just good enough, if you just believe in something, maybe everything's gonna be fine in the end. No, 
Thank you that the truth has come from your word today and that we know it in our souls. Let us go from this place with a burning desire that others might know Jesus, the one who is worthy of our lives, the one, the only one from whom we receive purification from sins. The only one. No one else paid the price. No one else offers the gift. Only Jesus. Oh, that the world could know. That one more person might know this week because of someone in this church being faithful to share this truth. Maybe there's someone here today, God, that has understood it for the first time. There's been a spark of faith that someone has said, I never knew why I needed to believe in Jesus. Today, I I believe, I'm ready. I want him to be my Lord and my Savior from this point forward. We call that getting saved. If you have a true moment like that in your heart, that is a conversion. That is a moment when God says, if you believe in the Son, you will be saved for eternity. Today, maybe you believed in the real Jesus. I hope you'll let us know. So just say yes to God right now. And let us know either um, through going to the back while we sing or filling out a communication card. God, thank you for working in our hearts. Help us as we sing. Continue to move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.